Amen. Thank you, choir and praise team. Thank you for leading us in songs that exalt Jesus. What a wonderful promise. It's the only promise any of us has is that Jesus will hold us when we are his. If you have your Bibles this morning, please open to Philippians chapter 2 as we continue our sermon series entitled, To Live is Christ. Now, at the end of Philippians chapter 1, what we looked at last week was that Paul was commending the church commanding the church, imploring the church, exhorting the church there at Philippi to live as citizens worthy of the gospel. So we looked at that last week, what it means to live as a citizen worthy of the gospel. He's told them that as a church, they have to remain united in their commitment to Christ and to stand firm like redwoods. Remember, standing firm like redwoods together in the midst of stampeding opposition from outside of the church. Okay, Paul was saying that there are opponents and there are those in opposition to the church on the outside, and we have to stand united in Christ together facing the opposition. Now, in our text today, Paul is going to shift his emphasis. He's going to shift it from standing firm against outsiders to basically standing firm um, in the midst of those who might rise up within the church to protect and maintain the unity of the church. Now, I want to say this is something that might sound counterintuitive to you, but the truth is the greatest dangers that face churches seldom come from the outside. They almost always arise from within. Every New Testament letter written to a church, so just think about it, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Every letter written to a New Testament church tells them to watch out, not just for dangers from the outside, but from those who would arise from within and turn the church away from her mission and her focus. Church history is full of examples of churches that have been destroyed. Go to Ephesus today, there's not a church there. The city doesn't even exist anymore. The point is that church history is full of examples of churches that have been destroyed not by tyrannical governments or outside pressures, those though, though those are very real, but from those on the inside. Churches that have been destroyed by those who have lost sight of why we must remain united to our core mission of honoring Jesus and proclaiming His name among the nations. Now, Dwight Pentecost famous New Testament scholar, on his commentary of Philippians, he tells this story. I found it humorous and sad at the same time. He says, there was a certain church in Dallas that became divided, and the rift was so bitter that each side instituted a lawsuit seeking to dispossess the other from the church property. This was despite the scripture's warning about taking such matters before the public courts. The story, of course, hit the Dallas newspapers and garnered considerable interest from readers. The judge wisely ruled that it was not the province of the court to decide such matters until the case had been heard before the denomination's church court. So the dispute was remanded to the ecclesiastical court where eventually the decision was made to award the real estate and properties to one side. The losers withdrew and formed another church nearby, and he quips, church growth the American way. It was reported in the Dallas newspaper, newspapers, no doubt with some delight, that the church 
court had traced the trouble to its source. The trouble began when at a church dinner, an elder had been served a smaller slice of ham than the child seated next to him. Isn't that funny? And sad at the same time that a church would split over a, church, over a piece of ham served to a child. Now, there's another story I could tell, and I will, but I will not say the names to protect the innocent and the guilty. I heard about a church even here in West Tennessee. Y'all go look for this, but I'm not going to tell you where it is. There's even another church, a story I've heard from a pastor friend of mine, how he met a guy in town the first few months of him moving there. He told this person in his town that he was the new pastor of the local church. And the man responded by saying, quote, I can tell you one thing, you better not move the Christmas tree. <laughs> Apparently, the man was not in any way affiliated with the church, but he knew about it. The previous pastor had run into a lot of issues for moving the Christmas tree and word spread throughout the community, so much so that a random guy in town could give advice to the new pastor, don't move the Christmas tree. Now hear me, that's also funny and sad. It's divisions within the church that give rise to the church being disregarded and derided by outsiders. Hear me again. It is divisions within the church that give rise to the church being disregarded. Like, that church doesn't matter. All they want to fight about is Christmas trees or about ham. It's right, it allows people to rightly deride them and disregard them. That's why it's such a big deal to Paul in our text that a church remain united. So the title this morning is Living Worthy of the Gospel Together. He's just told them, Live as citizens worthy of the gospel before outsiders. And now he's going to say, here's how you do it inside the church. How do you live worthy of the gospel? Look there, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. He says, so, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any com comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. I want to break this into three sections as we walk through the text together. Here's my first point. The first thing Paul begins with is motivations for living worthy of the gospel. Motivations for living worthy of the gospel. In verse 1, Paul is going to list four motivations for the church. Now, in, in God's economy, it's not just what we do that matters. It's how we do it. It's the why behind why we do it. Our motivations are, as, are equally important to the things we do. We have to live worthy of the gospel in such a way that it demonstrates that our hearts and our, and our motives are being shaped and led by the new heart that Christ has placed within us when we come to the gospel, when we've come to Jesus um, by faith. So here are those four motivations, four objective motivations. Number one, he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Now, Christ 
We know this. Christ is the foundation and the cornerstone of all of our help and encouragement. There is no greater source of encouragement or help given to us than Christ Jesus himself. And what Paul is doing is he's reminding the Philippian church of their salvation, of what Christ has done for them, of the help that Christ has provided for them. He's telling them to remember that it was Christ who was at work in you. It was Christ who began the good work in you, and it is Christ who will carry it on to the day of completion. Have you experienced salvation in Jesus, and has your heart been encouraged and strengthened by Him? That is a motivation that should drive you to look towards to looking towards others and living in a gospel way towards them. You've received Jesus, you've experienced him. Now live towards others in the church out of that experience. But there's a second motivation. He says if there is any comfort of Christ's love. Is there any comfort of Christ's love? Now Paul is reminding them of Christ's love and comfort even in the midst of their persecutions. Remember, Paul is in prison. The church has opposition facing them. The world is squeezing them. There is pressure on them to leave the faith and walk away from Jesus. And Paul is saying, have you not experienced the comfort of Christ's presence and love among you? Has not the love of Jesus warmed your hearts and comforted your souls? Has not the love of Christ given you shelter from the storm? Has not Christ been a rock of refuge to you? Has he not been an anchor firm? Has not the love of Christ assuaged your guilty conscience when you faltered and strengthened you when you've been weak? Just think for a second. This is an objective experience, an objective reality that is facing them. Is there no encouragement in Christ? Is there no comfort found in his love? But then there's a third motivation. And the third motivation is, is there any participation in the Spirit? Is there any participation in the Spirit among the congregation? Now, some translations use the word fellowship. It's the same word. It's from the Greek word koinonia. It means partnership, participation, fellowship together. It is the Spirit who has animated and filled the Philippians. And it's the Spirit who unites them together in Christ. And we have the same experience here. Have you not come to Jesus? Have you not been empowered and indwelled by His Spirit? Listen, we've all been indwelled and baptized into the same Spirit when we came to Christ. And we have the same experience and relationship with God's Spirit. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 12 says. Paul says to the church at Corinth, he reminds them of this same basic truth that they're to live out of. He says, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So Paul says the spirit doesn't care whether you're tall, short, rich, poor, old, young, black, white. When you come to Jesus, the spirit fills you and empowers you, and it is the spirit who unites us together. We drink from the same Spirit who fills us. And in Paul's Trinitarian blessing at the end of the book of Corinthians, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship, the the participation, the partnership of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And my point is that if we are walking together in mutual love and care for one another out of the Holy Spirit, 
then God's Spirit does not lead us into pity and trite conflicts. We shouldn't fight about ham. Now listen, I'll be as mad as anybody if I don't get a piece of ham. But not enough to split a church, right? I mean, that's what Taco Bell's down the street for. Taco Bell's good. Go there. You might have to wait in line 45 minutes. But it'll be worth it. My point is, God's Spirit isn't going to lead us to that. What God's Spirit does is leads us into love, unity, and gospel participation. So if we walk by the Spirit together, then all of our eyes will be focused on Jesus and our purpose. It is the enemy who wants to distract us and turn us towards things that don't matter. And we can't stand united by standing apart. After all, what did Jesus say? Even, he said a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. You can't, that's not how it works. So, that's what happens. And then, the, but there's a, the fourth motivation. And that fourth motivation, he says, if there's, if there has to be mutual affection and sympathy together. He says mutual affection and sympathy. Now, earlier, earlier in Philippians, Paul had told them that he longed for them with the very affections of Jesus. He says, you know how I long for you. I yearn for you with the very affections of Jesus. Now, that's the same word used here. It's the Greek word, splachna. That's a really fun-sounding word, isn't it? That word actually means guts. It sounds like guts. You don't want to spill your splachna anywhere. Um, but that's what it is. And what he's saying, though, is from the Greek perspective, they didn't use the word heart for where your emotions and affections came for. They say down deep in your guts. I love you from the deepest part of my being, from my bowels. And so... What's happening here is that Paul is challenging them to look into themselves. Look into yourself, church. Look into yourself as an individual and ask yourself if the same affections of Jesus have been poured out into you and are flowing from you towards others. Is there really, has the love of God been poured out into your hearts by His Spirit such that it overflows onto other people? So let me tie all that together. We put all four of these in a row here. When you come to Jesus and experience salvation in His name, when you experience His love and you participate in the Spirit, what that leads to is mutual love for one another. As Jesus has loved you, so you are to love one another. Paul says that in Romans 5. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. 1 John makes that argument. Listen to what John says. He says, Beloved, that's the church, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God. You see that? You've come to Jesus. You've been born of God. You've experienced salvation and knows God. And he says, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And then he explains it. He says, In this, the love of God was made known among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us. And His love is perfected in us. Is there any mutual affections and sympathy towards one another in Christ? Now, I want to make this gospel point here. 
just stop and think what Paul was doing here as he admonishes the church. It's interesting that Paul doesn't just say this, you guys just got to do better. You just got to do better. I'm going to slap you on the back of the head and say try harder. Paul's instructions are not to try harder. That's not the point. He drives them to the objective truths of their experience in the gospel. Remember, Jesus is our encouragement. Jesus loves his children. Jesus pours out his spirit who lives and moves among us. Jesus' affections flow through us towards one another. So if you're struggling, if you're struggling today to live worthy of the gospel together, or you feel as though you don't have that responsibility as a member of this body, the remedy isn't to try harder. The remedy isn't to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and give more effort. The remedy is to go back to the gospel. The remedy is to go back and understand that Jesus has given you everything you need. You need more of Jesus, not more of you. The problem begins with us when we get in the way. We have to have the same mindset that John the Baptist said when he says, listen, I have to decrease. He needs to increase. I don't need more effort. I need more of God's love to be poured out into me. So that begins with like a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, do in me what I cannot do for myself. Lord Jesus, pour out your love in me towards others because I can't do that. So you have to have motivations for living in gospel unity together. Second, not only do you have to have those motivations present, but you have to have a mutual mindset of gospel unity. That's point two, a, a mutual mindset of gospel unity. So having laid out those four motivations, Paul now exhorts the church to complete his joy by having a united mind around the gospel. Look what he says in verse two. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. There's a lot of repetition right there. Gospel unity, hear, hear, hear this, gospel unity is so important to Paul that he doesn't care what happens to him as long as the church gets that crucial truth right. Remember, he's chained up in prison, surrounded by guards, awaiting his trial with the potential of being condemned and executed, and he says, my joy would be complete if you were of the same mind, same love, and a full accord. That's crazy. That is repetitious. Paul says, same mind, same love, full accord. That's the word meaning same souled. Same mind, same love, same souled, meaning from deepest down, you have the same purpose and meaning in life. And then he says, being of one mind. Not just the same mind, but of one mind together. So Paul's, Paul's um, joy isn't completed by getting out of prison but by his brothers and sisters walking together in Jesus, having the same mindset. I think it's interesting that John writes his letter, 3 John, and he says almost the exact same thing. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. Paul says, I have no greater joy than if you walk in unity in Jesus. That's the point. So how do we do that? How do we do that? We do that by thinking gospel thoughts towards one another. Having a gospel outlook and mindset. That means we run all of our interactions with each other and our relationships through the lens of the gospel. Now I know what you're going to say, but Pastor Jacob, they're very difficult people in the church. And I say, amen, yea, verily, and you are one of them. 
There are a lot of difficult people in the church. Amen. But you are too. I am. So what do we do? Listen, when we deal with people in the church, that sometimes, listen, there's, there's sometimes when I look and people are walking towards me and I go, well, Lord Jesus, here's my chance at sanctification for the day. You know, here's my chance at that. But here's what's happening in those interactions about a gospel outlook. And I know why you're laughing, because you have those things. You were just like me. Don't act like you're not, okay? Don't try to, Jacob, I would never think that way towards a brother and sister in Christ. You are a liar, all right? So, this is what's happening in those moments, in our hearts, okay? It's in those moments I am tempted to think that if that difficult person would just be less irritating or a little more mature or a little less negative or less irritable, then getting along with them would be much easier. Well, yeah, of course that will be true. But it's in those moments where texts like this remind me that if only I was a little more gentle like Jesus, if only I was a little more patient like him, if only I was a little more kind like him, then I wouldn't have these sub-gospel thoughts about those for whom Christ died. Christ didn't die for me because I was less irritating. Right? God places those people in my life not to show me that they're difficult, but to show me that I need gospel grace. That's what I need. So the issue isn't those people that I think are bothersome. The issue is my heart not being committed to thinking gospel thoughts towards others. Remember, Jesus died for sinners of whom I am the chief. All of us in here have offended God and are in need of redemption. Jesus loves each of his children just how they are. He's patient, kind, and long-suffering. He's tender and merciful, and he's that way with me. Amen? Jesus doesn't love us because we have it all together or because we're further along in our spiritual journey than others or because we're more socially adjusted or accepted than others. Aren't you glad? Hear me. I want to stick the knife in here and turn, and I hope it hurts. In Jesus' name. Aren't you glad that God doesn't think of us the way that we usually think of others? He sees us through the lens of Jesus. And that's how we have to learn to see others in the church. That's what having a mutual mindset of gospel unity looks like. That all of us share that gospel mind and heart towards one another. Quick to be gracious, quick to be kind, quick to be forgiving, and quick to remember that no one has offended God more than me. And so we have that. And then third and finally, we have a mutual commitment to gospel care. Not just gospel thinking, but gospel care towards one another. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says there, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So that's a negative. Don't do that. Don't do, no, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what Paul is saying here is that if you've really come to Jesus and these motivations are true and you have the mind of Christ seeing people with gospel intentions and clarity, then you have to allow that same gospel to put selfishness to death in you. Let the gospel put your sin to death. 
Let the gospel cause you to quit thinking about yourself and your own needs and free you to living for the good of others. The cross is the place, hear me, the cross is the place where pride goes to die. When everything prideful and selfish in me, it dies at the foot of the cross. Because it's where the cross is the place where you and I admit that there's nothing good in us. And the only thing I bring to the cross, the only thing I bring to Jesus is the sin from which I need to be saved. That's the only thing I brought to Jesus. I didn't bring him a lot of material goods. I didn't bring him a lot of... I didn't bring him anything except the sin from which I needed to be saved. And so I don't have anything else to offer And so what we do is when we come to Jesus, we admit our sin, admit our helplessness, and our complete dependence on Jesus. The the Bible repeatedly says things like, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And Jesus says, it's not the well who need a physician, but the sick. I didn't come to call the self-righteous in their own eyes, but sinners to repentance. So it's the gospel that kills the root of pride so that we can die to ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus, and love and serve others in humility. And that's exactly what Paul says. It's the gospel that allows us to care for one another rightly. And, Jesus, and then Paul says, if you've done that, then consider others as more significant than yourselves. Remember, don't walk around like you're the most important person in the universe. My favorite quote by J. Vernon McGee, I say it all the time, is J. Vernon McGee says, this is God's universe and he does things God's way. You might have a better way, but you don't have a universe. That's the point. That that's the point. I try to say it like he says it. But we don't walk around as Christians as though we're the most important. No, what do we do? This is the acronym. It's a silly acronym, but I, I, I think about it because it, it, it does give a, a gospel truth. That the path to caring for one another rightly is joy, Jesus, others, and then you. That's how you live. You live Jesus first, then we live for the good of others, and then finally I can look out towards my own interest. If you live in that order, then you will experience being able, you will experience the right focus. Listen, the happiest moments of your life are when you are not thinking of yourself at all. Have you thought about that? The happiest moments of your life are when you've died to yourself, forgotten about yourself, and then out of care and love of Jesus, you seek to pour that out onto someone else. That's where joy comes from. That's where pleasure comes from, from being like Jesus, who did not come to serve, who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for others. That's what we do. The more you focus your mind and heart on Christ, and then allow his love and life to flow through you to others, the more joy you will find. That's what it means to live out the gospel, to live worthy of the gospel together. So as I close, and I'm going to pray in just a minute, my questions are, do you have the right motivations to living this out? Because these have to be gospel motivations. You have to go back to your experience with Jesus in order to be able to love towards others? Do you have a mindset, a mutual, does our church have a mutual mindset of we are going to love each other in light of Jesus together? That's why, by the way, when people come to visit a gospel church, they should go, you know, this is almost like walking into heaven. Like, there's something different here. Of course, all these people are still sinners. We all still struggle. We all still screw up and mess up. But 
they're all at least committed to loving each other and walking in humility together and serving one another out of love for Jesus. The gospel should flavor our relationships. It should, we should smell the gospel in here. We should taste it together. We should sing it together, pray it together, walk in it together, and serve one another in it together. That's what it means. We have a time of invitation here just a second after I pray. We'll get offline. But if you don't know Jesus, come to Jesus. Come experience the encouragement of Christ, the love of Christ, the filling of Christ's spirit by turning from your sin and coming to Jesus. If you're here and you don't, you don't, you're, you're a Christian and you haven't been walking this way, then come repent. That's the, that's the gospel thing to do. Lord Jesus, I repent. Fill me with your love and spirit again. And if you don't have a church home, we ask you to consider being a part of this gospel community. Come and have that conversation with us that you want to unite with us together and covenant together to love and serve one another here as an official part of our body. Would you pray with me? Father, bless your word as we sing. Bless your word as we sing here in a moment. Bless your word as we've heard it preached. And Father, we ask that your spirit would move among us now, convicting us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We pray for hearts to be awakened, hearts to be stirred, for revival to happen, all based on Jesus and his work among us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.